If you have a, a Bible there, I encourage you to turn to Romans 3. So Romans 3, and we're thinking today of sin's solution. I don't know if you can remember being in English class, or some of you still have to go to English class, and English grammar was always a great joy. Uh, one thing I remember from my English class was that you should never start a sentence with but. It's a rule which I have broken constantly in my life. And the wonderful thing is, we come to the section we're looking at today, God's Word begins with a but. So, young people, you can quote that to your English teachers. Indeed, God's Word begins with but. And praise God, this section begins with a but, because we come to a point well, there's a great change in Paul's teaching. Leon Morris, who's a Bible commentator, he describes this paragraph that we're thinking about today, the whole paragraph from verse 21 to 26, as probably the most important paragraph that has ever been written in the world. Probably the most important paragraph that has ever been written. I hope that whets your appetite to see that what we're beginning to look at today, and we'll take a couple of Sundays to do this, is something that's so crucial. But before we get into the heart of it, let's take a wee step back and see where Paul's argument has been coming from and the, the climax of his argument, which we reached last week as we considered our true condition. And he summarized it by saying that all are under sin. All people are under sin. Now, what does that mean? We saw it meant four things. Sin's corruption. We're so twisted by sin, we do not seek God. We naturally turn away from God. Sin's wickedness. We're cruel towards others with our words and our actions. Sin's misery. Ruin and misery surround us. We have no peace. We have no lasting contentment because of sin. And sin's condemnation. All are under sin. All are guilty. None can argue about that. We can't change our situation ourselves by keeping the law. And that is the terrible and the hopeless situation that people who are sinners, which we all are, naturally find ourselves in. Aren't we glad that the next bit we're thinking about today begins with a wonderful but? We're sinners who are corrupt. We're sinners who are wicked. We're sinners who have misery. We're sinners who are condemned. But we come to this great but today. Sinclair Ferguson, who you've probably heard me quote different times, a tremendous preacher, he was preparing a sermon on Romans chapter 3 that we're looking at today. And while he was preparing that one night, he had a dream while he was doing that. And you do get these dreams when you're doing preparation. And his dream was that he ended up in court. And the judge, for some reason, was behind a curtain. He couldn't see the judge's face. But the judge pronounced the verdict, you're guilty. And you are fined $100,000. And you will go to prison until you have paid that fine. And in his dream, Sinclair Ferguson cried out, but I don't have that money. I have nowhere near that money. And if I go to prison, how can I ever get and earn that money when I am in prison? And the judge says to him, well, that's just the beginning of your trouble. And so 
that's the situation. Because of sin, we're condemned, we're guilty, the debt we have is so great, we're hopeless and helpless. There's nothing that we can do to change that. And when we can do nothing to change the situation that we're in because of our sin, we need help from outside. We're all under sin, we're all corrupted, we're all wicked, we're all in misery, we're all condemned, but. Now, what does this but lead to today? First thing it leads to, righteousness revealed in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, remember that term, the righteousness of God. We have met it before, and it can be seen in two ways. We thought previously about Martin Luther, and how Martin Luther, as a young monk, he hated that term, the righteousness of God. Because for him, it spoke of a standard that he could never reach. No matter how holy he tried to be, no matter how much he denied himself, no much he devoted himself to God, he knew he never reached God's standard. And so the righteousness of God spoke to him to something that he could never reach. But then he came to understand that there is a way that the righteousness of God can come to him. The righteousness of God can come to him and change him and make him right with God. As righteousness cannot be earned by our efforts, it has to come from another source. And this righteousness, Paul says in this verse, is apart from the law. In other words, it can't be achieved by keeping the law. This righteousness has to come from the only one who is truly righteous, who is God himself. And this righteousness from God, this righteousness is manifested, it says, or revealed to sinners. This is not something that we can discover for ourselves It's not something, no matter how intelligent we are, we can ever work out with our own thinking. Because sin has so blinded us, sin has so twisted our thinking, it's so darkened our hearts, that the only way that we can know this truth is that God would reveal it, that God would make it known to us, so we can then grasp hold of it. Now, Paul teaches that while the law does not bring righteousness. Keeping the law doesn't make us right. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets, the scriptures, point us to where this righteousness can be found. And through the witness of God's word, he makes known to us the truth of this righteousness. But there's still a problem. Even though God, through his word, tells us about this righteousness, there's still something lacking for us to grasp hold of it. Due to the darkness of our hearts, God has to shine that truth, not just before our eyes. God has to shine that truth truth deep within our hearts. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shown his truth into people's hearts 
So it's displayed in the Scriptures, but God does more than that. Through His Spirit, He reveals the truth in their hearts so that we can accept it and understand it and grasp it. And you know, it's a wonderful thing when you see this process beginning to happen in people. Many of us here are Christians can testify that as we became Christians, we had a very different attitude to preaching. There are two main things probably happened to most of us when we became Christians in regards to preaching. First of all, we began to listen and to understand in a way that we had never done before. It sort of made sense in a way that we had never grasped before. And secondly, it was as if the preaching was directly aimed at us. And that's the work of the Spirit. The preaching didn't change. But the Spirit was working in us to give us an understanding, to give us a conviction about it, which had not been there before. Righteousness revealed. And then secondly, we see righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ here in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, the words faith and believe, which are basically from the same common root, are mentioned together. Faith is the noun, and believe is the verb. And by Paul using both these words, faith and believe, he's trying to emphasize this is so important. This is vital for you to grasp in regards to salvation. Grasping that righteousness comes to us not by the works we do, not by the works of the law, not by works of religion, not by good works of kindness, but to grasp that instead righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ, through believing in Jesus, this is the most important lesson that we can ever learn. In Ephesians, he puts it this way, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul is saying, listen, do you understand this? You're saved not by works, it's true faith. And even that faith by which you grasp hold of Christ, that faith comes to you as a gift of God, produced in you, not by your efforts, produced in you by the work of the Spirit. But it's important, though, that we realize that the answer to our sin and the way we get right with God is not just faith itself, but a particular type of faith. It is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I was very tempted to make this point just righteousness through faith. It'd be shorter and it'd be more pithy little point. But you can never separate faith from Jesus. You see, we mustn't have faith in our faith. The object of our faith has always to be Jesus. Our faith always has to be focused on him, relying on him. Jesus says in John 14, believe in God, believe also in me. Ultimately, it's not faith that saves us. It is Jesus who saves us. But we're joined to Jesus. We're united to his salvation through this means of faith. 
Let me illustrate this point. You see, we picture coming up about a drowning person, and they're rescued by someone throwing them a rope. Now, can you imagine that evening and that drowning person, and someone comes to me, here you had a close shave today. Who saved you? What would they say? Oh, it's this rope saved me. It was the rope that rescued me. It's the rope that should have all the praise. Of course, I wouldn't say that. The rope was only the means. Who saved them was the person at the other end of the rope. That was the person who deserves the thanks and the praise. And you see, faith is like the rope. And Jesus is the one at the other end of the rope. Jesus is the one who brings us to safety from our drowning in sin, and he does it through the means of faith. One of the great cries of the Reformation was faith alone. Many are happy to accept a salvation of faith and good works. You do your good works, you do your best, but where you fall short, a wee bit of faith will make up the gap. And many people like that idea. And that is the common belief about salvation throughout the world today. Do your best with a bit of faith and you'll be all right. But the cry of the Reformation, the cry of the Bible is it's faith alone. That idea of faith and works together, it condemns people to hell. Our cry has to be, like the hymn puts it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing from me. I just throw myself on Christ and his mercy. You see a picture of the well-known story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember how the Pharisee, before God, talked about all the wonderful things that he did? Now, that Pharisee had an element of faith. He trusted in God in a certain way. So he had faith and works. Jesus said, that didn't make him right with God. He didn't leave the temple that day righteous. But what about the tax collector, this sinful, cheating little man? He just threw himself and cried, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It was faith alone, trusting in Jesus alone. And Jesus says, he went away righteous, faith alone. Our shorter catechism of the Presbyterian Church says this, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. Rest on Jesus alone. Have you this faith alone? Are you resting on Christ alone? Have you come to that point realizing you're a sinner? There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Your only hope has to be to trust in Jesus. Righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Righteousness revealed. Righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, righteousness required. Reading here from the end of verse 22. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For there's no distinction. There's no exception. There are no special cases for good Presbyterians. All have sinned 
all fall short of God's glory by what they do. Frank Everhart was an American, and a bit like Martin Luther, he was someone who wanted to get right with God. He trained, like Luther, to be a priest. And no matter what he did, he still had this sense of guilt. And then one day, a Christian explained it to him, and he says, listen, you're trying to jump to God, but the chasm by sin is so big, you will always fall short. No matter how hard you try, no matter your best efforts, it will never be enough. You see, the challenge is we're measured against the glory of God, it says here. We're measured against God's infinite and glorious perfection. We're measured against God's absolute purity. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the call. That's the standard we have to reach to be saved by what we do. Who has measured up to such a call? Yet this is the righteousness that God requires. And Paul says, all have sinned and fall short. There's no use pointing to other people and saying, listen, I'm better than that person who doesn't go to church today. There's no point saying, I'm better than that person who has committed adultery, or I'm better than that person with their terribly vile mouth. Bishop Hanley Mool put it this way, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, God's glory. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of the mine, as in a coal mine. Are you, and you are on the crest of an alp of the mountains. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they. So maybe you see them sinful people's way down there. They can't reach the stars. You might see yourself as top of a mountain, but equally you cannot reach heaven itself. We all fall short by what we do. You see, we picture coming up of Hitler and Jesus. And you think of this, this is a question of righteousness. Take Jesus as perfect righteousness. Let's take Hitler to represent the most vilest person that has ever lived. In this line of righteousness, where do you stand? Where do you think you measure up? Look at all there, fellas. I think we, most of us, think we would come about there. We're surely not as bad as Hitler. We're not as good as Jesus. We're probably somewhere in the middle. No. This is where you stand. Look it on. You and I, by our sin, by our nature, we're right beside Hitler. The gap between us and Jesus is infinite. We're so far short. We're maybe a bit better than Hitler, but compared to Jesus, we're still so far short. And we can't do it by our activity. I remember years ago, I was involved in outreach in Balamina when I was assistant in Wellington Street. And I remember in a house using little gospel leaflets, talking about how we were made by God, made in his image to know God, but how that had all been spoiled by sin and the sin that we inherited. And this sin which affects every part of us. And no matter what we do, 
it can never make us right with God. Our, our religion, our good deeds are all contaminated by sin. It can never please God. And as I was sharing this with this man, this is a man who didn't go to church, and, and I was just sharing it, it was so refreshing, he just cried out, well, what can be done? He had grasped it. He had grasped that he was in a terrible situation. He was grasped that he couldn't do anything. So he says, what can be done? That opens us up to our next point. Righteousness by grace. Our final point here today. When righteousness is not something that we can earn or achieve, it has to come to us as a gift. Righteousness has to be given to us from God, even though we don't deserve this. And this is grace. This is what grace is. God giving us as a gift that which we can't achieve for ourselves, and God giving us that which we don't deserve from God. Righteousness comes as a gift of grace to the undeserving and to the helpless. And this gift of grace comes to us through Jesus Christ. Now remember, I've said this before, grace is not a thing. Grace is not a substance. Grace is Jesus in action, Jesus providing our salvation. Grace is Jesus at work. I think the way Anagram summarizes it so well. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is a gift to us. It's free to us, but it is a gift that is costly to Jesus. It cost him his life. It cost him his shed blood. It cost him the horror of the cross. Free to us, but at such a high price for Jesus. And this grace means we are justified. Look what it says there in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, this is a new term for us in this passage. Some have said that to be justified, which means to be right with God. It means we're forgiven, we're pardoned. Yes, being justified means we're forgiven. It means we're pardoned. But being justified means something much more than that. It's a much richer, it's a much more glorious term than just being forgiven and pardoned, as important as that is. To be justified means to be declared righteous in God's sight. It means that the perfect righteousness that comes from Jesus, that came from his perfect life of obedience on this earth, that perfect righteousness is credited to us to our account. Justified means not only that we're forgiven, but we are declared as having lived a perfect life of righteousness. Let's use an example about debts. Because of sin, it's like we have a great crippling debt of millions. You see, we diagram come up here. To be pardoned means that that debt is taken away. Where we were millions of pounds in the red, it now becomes zero in our account. That is what it means to be pardoned. But to be justified is something more than that. Flick it on. Being justified means not only is our debt cleared, 
we have millions of pounds in our spiritual account through Jesus. You see the difference? It isn't just that you're forgiven and your sin is washed away. It's you're now declared as having lived that perfect, righteous life that Jesus has lived. The Catechism says it this way. Justification is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed or transferred to us and received by faith alone. Justification is an act of grace. One moment, we're guilty in the sight of God, deserving his wrath. The next moment, we're declared as righteous in his sight, deserving heaven's glory. The perfect life of Jesus, his perfect righteousness is imputed. It's transferred as credit to us. How does that happen? It is a gift of grace that comes through faith alone. One moment, yes, we're that guilty sinner deserving God's wrath. And then we come to Jesus knowing that he's died to save us. We throw ourselves upon Jesus' mercy. We trust in what he has done. And at that moment, we are declared as righteous. We are declared as those who have lived a righteous life. Not that we've done it, but it is what Jesus has done is placed in our account. And this is through faith alone. Trusting in Jesus alone. And you see here today in our service, God looks down and he sees two types of people. He sees those who are still in their sin because you haven't come to trust in Jesus. You're guilty. You're under his wrath and judgment. And then there are those because we have trusted in Jesus. We've come to Jesus. We've embraced Jesus. We're declared as righteous covered, as it were, with the beautiful robe of Jesus' lives. Are you today in the shabby rags of your sin? Or are you wearing the beautiful robes of Christ's righteousness? Years ago in Scotland, people, when the days when people would have been hung for serious crimes... Often what happened was that people were hung in the morning at the jail. And then what would be put outside the jail, let's use a good Scottish name, Angus Buchan. Angus Buchan would be put on a notice, Angus Buchan, who committed such and such a crime, at 8 a.m. this morning, was justified. In other words, Angus Buchan, had paid the price for his sin that morning. He was justified. The price had been paid. And the wonderful thing for the Christian is the Christian looks to the cross. They looks to the cross and the Christian says, I have been justified 2,000 years ago because Jesus has paid the price in full and his righteousness has been given to me. What a thought. Look to the cross and know you're right with God.
for eternity. Not something you earn, not something you work to achieve, but something you receive as you come like that sinner in the parable of the Pharisee and the tackler. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, grasping hold of Jesus for your salvation. Righteousness through grace. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for this message today. We have been looking at sin. We've looked at sin's judgment and and how we have been corrupted by it. But we praise you for this great but put in here today as we come to the righteousness that is revealed, the righteousness, Father, that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness by grace. Oh, Lord, grant today that we would be a righteous people, that we would be those today who would come and embrace Jesus, trusting in what he's done on the cross, embracing him as our Savior, as our Lord. For such grace we pray. 